This is Wellness Wednesday, and my name is Angela Seaborn, your host. This podcast is brought to you by Rich Woman Magazine. I'm on a mission, a mission to educate anyone who wants to learn the ABCs of mental health by providing a safe place, a one-stop shop, so to speak, where you'll find everything mental health related. Because when we understand, we do not fear. When we do not fear, we accept ourselves and others. When we accept ourselves and others, we eradicate all the isms and unite all our brothers and sisters of the world together for a better tomorrow. Today's guest was born and raised in the southern state of Arkansas. Dorothy Marie King, or as she prefers to be called, D, is a psychiatric registered nurse with over 25 years experience. Her reach has touched and changed thousands of lives for the better for those individuals that have been impacted by mental illness. On the business side of things, Dee managed a $5 million budget for allocating mental health and mental disability services for the state of Georgia. Dee is an, is an ambassador for the International Red Hat Society of Women, a mentor, author, poet, identity facilitator, and public speaker. Dee's current dream is to develop a global nonprofit initiative to provide a safe, affordable housing for the underserved population. We can talk about mental health until the cows come home. You know, but if you do not know how to access support, it's a moot point. That's why Today, Dee and I are going to discuss how best to navigate the mental health system, where to start, how to match services with your needs, what to do if you want to change doctors, how to advocate for yourself, and more. So, without further ado, let's welcome Dorothy Marie King to the stage. Hi, Dorothy. I want to welcome you to Rich Woman's Magazine Mental Health Matters podcast. How are you? Hi, Angela. I am phenomenal. Just great. This is an absolutely relevant subject, and I am passionate about mental health. But let me start by saying good morning to Dr. Marina, and hello to listeners around the globe. I thank all of you for sharing this experience with us. I consider this a tremendous opportunity to speak on a subject about which I am so passionate, and that's mental health. Thank you so much for having me today. You are more than welcome. So let's dig in. uh, Dee, I'm so grateful to have you here today. You know, you have an extensive background in mental health on top of your passion. You know, you've been on the front lines. You've been behind the scenes. So our audience is in for a wealth of information. So everybody, put on your seatbelts. You're in for a ride. Throughout this interview, I will chime in here and there for our Canadian listeners when necessary to clarify differences in service. You know, I understand our listeners are international. However, my hope is that the information shared today will at least help you know what questions to ask when navigating services in your own country. So, D, many people 
including some in the mental and medical field, they struggle with understand sorry, <laughs> they struggle with understanding the differences between mental health professionals, like in who does what, etc. So can you explain to our listeners the differences between psychiatrists, psychologists, clinical social workers, and psychiatric nurses? Yes, all of those terms are terms that are given to professional people who serve the mentally challenged citizens of any community, state, or nation, country. And to help better understand that, the psychiatrist is a medical practitioner specializing in the diagnosis and treatment of mental health issues. The psychologist, on the other hand, is a professional expert who specializes in the psychological abnormal human behavior and psychotherapy that a patient might require. There is a Bible that both the psychologist and the psychiatrist, as well as the social worker uses, is called the DSM-5. And this is a digital and statistical manual of mental health disorders. What that is, it's like going to the dictionary to look up the definition of a word. You want to know what the disease is that the person has and how to best treat it. But before you can treat it, you have to give it a diagnosis. The diagnosis clarifies the direction that the, that the interdisciplinary team is going to move in in order to, to treat this patient and come out with optimum results. And the interdisciplinary team consists of the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the social worker, the nursing staff, especially the psychiatric nurses, and the technicians. And the social worker is an academic professional who works to assist individuals, families, groups, oftentimes entire communities in meeting the basic needs such as day-to-day functioning, self-determination, that's where you decide you might want to go to another doctor, okay? Uh, Collective responsibility and optimum health. And they work in both the medical and psychiatric arenas to help the client reach their best potential and their best life. And that's basically it. Well said. Um, I just will add something, one thing. And I mean, just like all registered nurses are not psychiatric nurses and all clinical social workers are not trained in psychotherapy. Um, and, and it depends on what, what you, what schools you go to, like what streams you study. And um, so, yeah, that's always worth looking into too when you're seeking help, you know, what's your, what's the academic background and training of your mental health professional. Just thought I would add that. That's the simplest way to do it. But wow, well said, Dean D, and I appreciate you sharing that information because so many people ask that. And one thing that really, you know, with psychiatrists in the hospital, they're not usually trained in psychotherapy. They, like D said, they give diagnoses. They are good at knowing what um, medications to prescribe and what not to prescribe, etc. Um, some do. Some are trained in, in psychotherapy, and um, and usually those go to more private practice, but at the same time, you can still find them in like a hospital setting. So let me let get me in. Oops. I can, Angela. The amazing thing is that the psychologist and the psychiatrist have to coordinate their efforts because the psychiatrist would not know what medications to prescribe 
totally without getting all of the information in terms of the behavior of that patient. And the psychologist has conducted certain uh, tests and exams that will give him or her a better idea of what they're looking at. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, and I think like because you're in the, the the U.S. and you have a, your system, and in Canada, we have the system where you know psychologists can give a diagnosis, not of um, not of a diagnosis such as um, you know psychosis necessarily, um, and and in some provinces in Canada, social workers can too. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, working as a clinical social worker, I have done assessments on, on individuals and you get to know all of the different symptomologies because you're working day and day and night with, with um, a population of people and doctors and you get to, to learn um, so you can help the doctors with, you know, assessing, etc. But, yes. I'm going to go on to, oh, did you have something to say, Dee, or can I go to the next question? No, go on. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I can speak for the Canadian side of things, A, <laughs> when I say 99% of hospital patients and even some of my private practice clients express struggling with where to start when seeking help for themselves or loved ones, sometimes to the extent where they just give up until a crisis occurs. And this can be very harmful depending on, you know, the issue, uh, the mental health issue um, that the person is dealing with. Now, perhaps, Dee, you can talk about this a little and give some tips on the early steps of seeking support and maybe give some examples of, like, the level of support you might need for particular things that you're dealing with like say you broke up with your boyfriend and you're having a very hard time getting over it that might differ than somebody who's you know starting to, to to hear a voice and is really freaked out by it and is really afraid to tell somebody about it right absolutely those are two totally different ends of the spectrum the advice that i would give is that if you feel that you need to speak to someone or talk to somebody the best time to do it is sooner rather than later, because if you present to a mental health provider with extenuating extreme circumstances, they're going to take extreme measures. You want to have an opportunity to get your input into the situation, if at all possible. But if you're out of control, the providing services just have to take the steps necessary to safeguard you and the public from the actions that you might take. So the sooner you intervene to help yourself, the better, because at that point you have a chance to make suggestions, request a particular uh, care provider, if there's someone that you know. I can say that in the United States, the form of insurance that you have will in a large part dictate what happens in terms of where you go and the kind of services that you get. There are services on your job where you can talk to EAP and these services are available confidentially. The information that you discuss is not supposed to get back to your employer. If you're having an employment-related issue, uh, there are mental health community centers throughout the United States where you can go and have someone do an assessment, talk to someone. They may simply assign you a counselor at that facility that you will come back and visit with on a regular basis to try and work through the issues that you have. 
And if you're progressing and they can see that things seem to be leveling out and you're getting better and more in control of your situation, then that will be probably all the help that you'll need. A lot of times they will refer you to a, diet, a dietitian or a nutritionist because sometimes all we need to do is change the foods that we're eating and how it affects the body. And especially if you are put on psychiatric medications, um, that the foods that you eat can affect that extremely so. So you'll need help with that. But there are other forms of assistance. We have uh, where a person who is experiencing a dire situation or, or is in a mental health crisis, there's the emergency room. You can always go to the hospital. There's also um, the mental health crisis system, mobile crisis that will come out and assess the patient or the person and make a determination at that point. A lot of times the mobile crisis unit will refer people straight to a facility or straight to the hospital. If the mobile crisis unit has to come out, the person gets a chance to bypass a lot of the unnecessary things that they would have to do because all of the information that was generated through a mobile crisis is then forwarded to the facility where you're going to going where you're going and they have that that leg up so they can assist and it sort of expedites the situation um, and basically that would be uh, the, the process now the other thing is you might be making a visit to your therapist or your doctor psychiatrist and they can sense that you're at a point where things are not right and they will but we're assuming they don't have a psychiatrist or anything at this point. Sorry, I just Absolutely. wanted to get that. <laughs> Sorry. But a referral is another way that you can get into a facility. Uh, and for the one of the facilities at the a hospital where I work, the state institution, there was a forensics unit, and those persons were referred by the police department. And this is for someone who's not guilty by reason of insanity they are being sent to the forensics unit in order to be assessed as to whether or not they can stand trial. So I think that pretty much covers the spectrum. Yeah, it's interesting because in Canada, we don't use that word insanity. We, we say uh, they're not criminally responsible. Um, and that, and I think a lot of people, they don't understand what that really means because, I mean, when you're a victim of a crime, of course, you just want, you, you don't want to, you want that person to pay. So <laughs> when, and the clients that we, the patients that come in that are not criminally responsible, their whole trajectory in the mental, in, in their recovery is, is so painful because first of all, they don't even remember what they did because when you are in a full blown psychosis, you have, you're out of, it's just like it says, you're out of reality. It, you don't, you do not connect with reality. And you are seeing things maybe or hearing voices, for sh usually it's hearing voices um, that are real, as real as I'm talking to you right now. And they're telling you things. And the it, it could start off really nice, these voices even. But later, but as soon as you start listening to those voices and they start saying, you know, why don't you do that? And you do it, and then there's some problems. So... Um, and it's not difficult for a psychiatrist, a trained psychiatrist, to to see that. Like uh, there was the one guy who I forget his name, but he was in Canada, and he was guilty young guy of cannibalism. Um, and then he mailed like he he had a, there was a Chinese student who came, and he he what is his name? It'll come it'll come to me. 
But anyway, he was assessed at a hospital that I, I worked in, a psychiatric hospital, and he was. He was both um, had psychosis, and he was both, and he was also um, antisocial, uh, antisocial personality disorder, which is like a sociopath. So, um, but he, he refused to accept treatment. He refused to accept the diagnosis, which a lot of, when you're, when you're psychotic, you do. And, and so he refused it, and hence he's in prison. So um, when I, th- I think it's Ignato or anyway, I'll come, I'll remember it. Um, but yeah, he, he refused it. So yeah, forensic psychology is really interesting. Now, if you're looking just for, let's say, like I said, you're looking to, ha- you have a, you're sad, you can't get over your boyfriend, you broke up or your girlfriend or significant other, whatever it may be. So there are ways you can reach out and like Dee was saying, you can do mobile crisis, but a lot of people don't, like, if that, if you're feeling like you're going to hurt yourself, you can call mobile crisis, but where do you do that, you know? Maybe just Google mobile crisis, It'll, and you'll get a lot of things that'll pop up. Um, or you can just call your local mental health helpline. I know in Canada we have different ones, and I'm going to put a link to all the different um, services. That's um, connected on my website, my personal website, my work website, um, if you're interested in knowing them. But you can call, and let's say when I worked at Kids Help Phone, it's an international, sorry, a national help phone for, ki- for kids, people would call, kids would call, and we have a database of all the services all over Canada. So, you know, we could just hand that information out. So that's one way, too, just to get that information, to call somebody and ask, um, yeah. And, yeah, and the mobile crisis, which a lot of people don't know, if you have a child and they're out of control and you don't know what to do with them, you can call the mobile crisis instead of the police, right? Um, because they're trained. They're trained not to, to come in and traumatize them even more. Um, and, yeah, and you can get a referral from your doctor. Just that's how we do it in Canada as well. So, yeah, thank you. Um, maybe later on people might have more questions, but I will move on to the next question here. So, D, navigating the system. So, to navigate the system, you know, any, to navigate any system well, in part, involves understanding the culture of the system you are navigating. You know, and all systems have a culture. In Canada, when a person seeks mental health care in the public sector, like hospitals, community, mental health services, they are usually assigned a care professional. Rarely, if ever, are they free to choose. And, you know, this could be for a variety of reasons, availability, schedules, etc. The exception may be if that person walks into a time of intake, and says, I want to speak with this, I would like to talk to this specific doctor or this specific social worker, then it increases their um, chances of getting that specific doctor or social worker or registered nurse. Um, but it's not guaranteed still. And with all service industries, sometimes we are not satisfied with the help we receive, whether it be a cell phone carrier or a builder we hire to make our dream home, 
mental health professional services are not an exception. What can a person do if they are not satisfied with the mental health care they are getting? To be clear, I'm not talking about the serial shopper of professional services. I'm talking about that one-off situation. Let's say a psychiatrist in a hospital where for whatever reasons, be it personality differences, the style or treatment approach, the patient, the client, or the family members are not satisfied with their mental health professional. A person may feel too intimidated to speak up and request a new doctor, new nurse, social worker, etc. but we're talking about a, a psychiatrist here for our example. And even when they do, sometimes, uh, sometimes things go south. Egos are bruised, feelings are hurt, and resentment can build. In such, situa- in such situations, it's usually the patient, like the patient and the doctor relationships can dissolve. And it's usually the patient or client who suffers the brunt of it. So I, am, I would like to ask you, Dee, if you can speak to this and, and how somebody, and even if you are, remember a situation like that in your own uh, experience that turned out for the better and maybe one that didn't turn out for the better, um, can you speak to this, starting from the least, the least intrusive measure to get to make a change, to whatever else you need to do, and how a patient or family can advocate for themselves? Thank you. Wow. In trying to speak to that, I would say that the best possible scenario would be that the patient would make a request at one of the interdisciplinary uh, hearings that they have, where all the staff all the clinical staff meets with the patient to see where the progress is, what concerns the patient has. That's a place where you can ask to speak to the social worker and they will take the ball and run from there. However, the patient may be off on his own somewhere in a hallway and decide, I don't like this, I wanna do something else. He again can ask to speak to the social worker or his psychiatrist. These professionals are supposed to follow through and honor the wishes of the patient. But if there is a POA uh, for the patient, this is a patient advocate, your family member, whomever, then they will reach out to that person and let them know that this is a concern. Because mind you, we're working with people who are experiencing mental deprivation. So they may be just talking off the top of their head. So to get a second opinion from the person who is responsible for that individual and to let them know that this is what's going on. The communication channel is just totally uh, crucial at a point like this. And as Angela said, the doctors, the nurses, so everybody can have their ego bruised. And when that happens, the patient does receive the brunt of that kind of activity. The best scenario, again, is for the patient to have a family member or an advocate. There are patient advocates that are working on a paid basis. Um, You can ask any local hospital for the list of their patient advocates and they will they will supply that list for you. The same is true with mental health. But if things get to a point where there is no resolution, I can recall reading a patient's chart some six or eight months after he had requested to meet with another psychiatrist or psychologist and that had never occurred. It kept being put off to say that the time wasn't right, we weren't able to do this. And before I was able to realize what happened with that request, I had been assigned to another 
position in the facility, so I, I don't I don't know what happened with that. But these things are supposed to be documented, and someone is supposed to take action on behalf of the patient, on behalf of the client, because that in and of itself can create frustration, stress, and you're trying to help the person that's in the facility. So to try and honor their wishes would be the best thing. But mind you, there are situations where the patient does not like the direction that his care or her care is going in. So they would rather be someplace else. And all of those things have to be weighed. And it, it is optimum if you can discuss that with someone who has the patient's best interest at heart. Now let's look at the worst scenario. You have someone who doesn't have the outreach, who doesn't have the support. That's where the nurses, the psychiatric nurses have taken an oath to advocate for your patient. And you are to bring these things to the attention of someone who can fix the problem. And in most cases, once it's highlighted that this has been overlooked, it has not been addressed, it will be addressed at that point. But someone has to take an active role to see that it happens. And that is the route that you would take for that. Yes, yeah, I, I've seen it myself and it's, you know, the thing is, I'm, I'm, my example is an example I wanted to give an example of somebody who is capable of making decisions for self and, and aware of uh, um, the kind of treatment they want. And it's so, it, it's such, it's so ginger, it's like you have to be a diplomat almost. I don't know about the U.S., but in Canada you do. And now a good thing in Canada is we have a shift in how the doctors write their notes. First of all, it's electronic. Um, they, they do it electronically. And Canadi uh, Canadians are allowed to see the records. And it's not, like, in the past, it was really hard. You have to send a letter and, blah, 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 and then they go through it. And then they would, like, cross out things they didn't want you to see and then give it to you. And so what it's done now, it sh it's shifted the power. And doctors... Uh, social workers, they can't just write whatever they want. And they, we're not really trained to do that anyway. We're, we're trained to write the behavior without an interpretation in our notes. Um, so, but sometimes it doesn't always happen, especially with the doctors. You know, they might say, you know, refuses treatment and is, uh, and me, what does refuses treatment mean? It could be, no, I really don't need, I don't want that much medication. Can you lower it? Right. So there's no explanation there. So now what that's forced to do is people, the doctors have to write things electronically. People can look at the records and but I don't know if everybody is aware of that yet. And um, so that's helping to shift the balance because we're human beings. And then when you have a doctor who's, you know, they're, they're, they're the top of their game. They're bright. They're very smart and they want to help. And then suddenly they you're saying, look, you're not helping me that not all of them can handle it right and the ones that can handle it you probably wouldn't even want to leave them <laughs> so it's a whole whatever you need to do you know what do you think d is like they really do it in a, the most gingerly way you possibly can to make sure you're still getting the best care because the system isn't perfect but you got to take care of your own needs and and back keep yourself healthy and safe what do you think about what i just said d well, in the United States, one of the things at the facility where I was had been for 
20 plus years at that one facility. And this was a state mental hospital, a $37 million facility that was a state of the art construction and services. We gave the patients when they were admitted to our facility, a list of things that we call the patient's rights. They knew exactly what their rights were as designed and spelled out by our institution. And this was done from the state level because it was a state facility. And oftentimes the patients would bring that form to us and say, I know I have a right to this and that and that, because they understood what that patient rights or patient's bill of rights meant. So that was one of the things that gave them some empowerment. But yes, you can trigger a response from some of the doctors or some of the clinicians who think that what they say is the absolute and there should be no uh, discussion about it. Now, I've never experienced a situation where a doctor would strike over what they put in a patient's chart. But I do know that going to uh, charting online, uh, doing computerized charting has been a godsend because whoever does the charting will think twice, which means they will think twice before they make the diagnosis or present whatever information to the patient. Because what, once you put it there, of course, we know it's there. Uh, so they don't have the option to go back and change it. And then that creates another situation for the nurse because she has to gingerly move between the client knowing that she's advocating for the patient and the doctor to say, this does not sound right or do you want to look at that and let's see what we can do? Did you intend to say this? So it's, it's, it's a definite coordination of care if it's done correctly, where all the clinicians have to work together for the betterment of the patient. And that's the best outcome possible for the patient. That, that's beautifully said, yeah, because it's up to us, like the social worker or you, the doctors, to come together to advocate for that client and in a way that... Um, in a safe way, in a way that doesn't shame anybody. And um, once you do that, if it doesn't work, well, then they can take the next step. And I would, you know, suggest doing that, taking the next step. And like you said, with this new system, I mean, when I, doctors don't, like I, when I said they wipe things out, what I meant is when people go to get their clinical records, some of the stuff that they feel that may not be, and they'll, blanket out like they'll give them select pieces of of it in the past but now they can just go and ask for it electronically and look at their records and, and get it so yes like you're saying it keeps us more aware of what we're saying every day because we write where it's like we're constantly having to note take notes and to make sure it's also a stress because we have to make sure the language that we use cannot be misinterpreted. Just like texting, right? When you text somebody, it could sound like you're saying something negative, but it's no, you're not saying anything negative. You know, they just can't hear your tone of voice, etc. So in that way, it's more, it's a little bit more difficult, but it's better because it just makes us more aware. And uh, yeah, so I agree with that. One other thing I would like to add, in the United States, we have an organization called NAMI. It's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And this is a proactive uh, organization, a group of people who advocate on the part of the, pa of the patient, of the client. If you have complaints and they are to that level that you have to reach outside the system, you can contact NAMI and they will do an investigation of that facility and that complaint. They also have uh, information for knowledge and resources. 
that people can access. They have a database now that contains information about COVID and how it has affected the mindset of so many people. They also have online discussion groups. So if you get in touch with NAMI, and I have their number, I'll give you that in a moment, but they will also possibly refer you to a discussion group. Like you were saying, the person who broke up with her boyfriend and she's all been out of shape, they may send her to a group, a group and have her work through some of that, some of those issues at that level and then move on from there. Uh, I can put the uh, number for NAMI and also the suicide hotline prevention uh, number in my bio for Clubhouse and now I'll also put it on my Instagram page. That's a good idea. I will do that too. I, I, you know, I never really thought of doing that, but that's brilliant. Yes, I will do that too. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. So now we're ready for my other question. So you know what? Um, well, we talked about, I guess we kind of talked about this already, um, what other services there are. I, in Canada, we have things like walk-in mental health centers where you know, you can just walk in off the street during a particular time and you can see a mental health professional. So they might have one community, one organization might have, you know, every Thursday between this time and this time, you can walk in off the street. It's all confidential and speak. And it's usually a little bit longer than normal, the usual um, interview, like an hour and a half to two hours. And you can speak with a mental health professional. And in that situation that you can get an idea of what therapy is about or um, maybe you only needed one session like maybe someone just needs one session maybe someone's going through something and they just need to talk it over with with somebody right not everybody needs a, a hundred sessions or maybe all they need is housing <laughs> and through that session you get this information that this person is depressed yeah because they're struggling for work they're struggling to find a place to live all of those things so um, those, that's one way of, of getting help. And it's just not advertised. People don't know about that. And it's a matter of, of searching. So the, yeah, so there you have the walk-in mental health clinics, you have a mobile crisis, which is used for crisis, as, as, as we said, and they often go right to your home and they will help you. And they will, from there, like, was saying they'll expedite services and you can skip many steps and uh, then you have the phone support lines and now we have like tech support places like texting and all of those other types of um, internet ways of communication lgbqt supports um, everything and well i know that's in canada and then u.s so we covered that now maybe since we covered a lot of this, and before we go and end it and go into our Q&A, I would like to ask you this question. Like when, let's say we have a loved one who needs care, um, or a loved one we start to notice that they have, they're showing signs of, of depression. Like with young people, it could be they're sleeping all the time, and they don't attend to their chores, and that could be a depression, right? Or that could be a sign that they're being bullied because there's a shift in their behavior um, from the baseline. How can we, let's say, get 
that loved one support or how can we just support them to get their own support? I mean, the child is a little bit different, but with adult children and uh, friends and, and loved ones is like, how can we support someone best to get support when we notice these changes in them? Any, any suggestions? Absolutely, Angela. The very first thing is to open up a line of communication and do not attack the person. You're not going to get a good response if you come into that conversation in an accusatory or confrontational manner. The response is just not going to be good. The ideal situation would be if you already have an excellent line of communication uh, relationship with that family member. And as we all know, that's usually not the case either. So you have to gingerly, very gingerly approach the subject, find something else that not, that's not even related to what you want to talk about to open the conversation up and fill the person out. Because on any given day, that person may not want to hear what you have to say. But if you're fortunate enough to find a good day where you can sit down and get some rational responses to your questions, that's the time to talk. And simply let the person know what you've observed. And in thinking along those lines, I researched and found that there are five classic signs of mental health. Number one, excessive paranoia or worry and anxiety about things that you can't fix. And I, in that particular situation, I like to refer back to the serenity prayer. Fix the things you can, don't worry about the things you can't, and ask God to give you the wisdom to know one from the other. The second sign of mental illness is long-lasting sadness. And that's another way of saying depression. The third sign is extreme mood changes, which could be a bipolar situation where you're going up and down. Uh, the other is social withdrawal. And that one is iffy and questionable right now because of COVID, a lot of people are in social withdrawal because COVID has scared a lot of people just to the bejeebies. So social withdrawal has gone along with that. But in normal times, social withdrawal would be a sign of mental illness. And number five, a dramatic change in the eating and sleeping habits, as Angela had mentioned, of the person that you want to sit down and talk to. If you've noticed these signs and if they're all present, then there really is a problem. If you have tried to talk with the person and if you feel that there is a fear that something more drastic may happen and you can't reach the person, that's the time for you to reach out to one of the other agencies or services within your community and let them advise you on how to best handle it. Uh, I'm sure they will probably try and get you to get the person to come in so they can talk with the person. Normally when mobile crisis which is a service that will come to your home. Normally when they intervene, it's at, a, it's at a crisis point. That's why it's mobile crisis. So they don't come out to talk to people and try and get them to do whatever. They will come out when nothing has been able to assist the person and you are in a crisis mode or they're experiencing psychosis or psychotic behavior. And I just wanted to touch on some of the things that can create these problems. Stuff that we really probably don't even think about. But drug and alcohol can begin to deplete the brain uh, functioning and end up in other areas. We know we have depression. There are various types of psychosis or psychoses. Binge eating. There's anger management that can lead to other problems. Stress management, management and something called OCD, 
obsessive compulsive disorder where a person does something repeatedly that just really doesn't make sense. And I can't say that because this is that person's way of doing things. But I, I'm brought, the first thing that comes to my mind is one of the patients that I worked with at the hospital who had an obsessive compulsive disorder of backing up. We would have to tell her, if we told her once or reminded her once during the day, we did that 20 times because she backed up with everything that she did. That's an example of an obsessive compulsive disorder. Domestic violence is something that can lead to a person ending up in a mental situation where they would need assistance. They put up with it for so long and all of a sudden either they go off the deep end or the person perpetrating the domestic violence goes one step too far. Sex therapy. We don't think about that, but there are often times when things happen in the bedroom that a person has to call and report. Um, so that's a problem. And then last but not least. Or things don't happen in the bedroom. <laughs> we won't go there. Okay. Yes, that is true. But that is very true because if you're dissatisfied with your sexual life, then that creates problems. And sometimes you certainly can't tell the person that is creating the problem that, hey, you're just not, it's not there. Okay. So you may need counseling for that. But trauma is a biggie because you've got a possibility of a gunshot wound. They're the professional athletes with brain trauma. And then there are also motor vehicle accidents, which account for a large number of the traumas that we see, as well as falls. So that's like a spectrum of things that will cause a person to have to seek additional psychiatric services. Yeah, well said. And I would um, suggest for anybody whose loved one has a diagnosis or or doesn't have a diagnosis, but uh, but exhibits different symptoms. You know, once you get it, once a person does get a, a diagnosis, though, you may want to look up how best to how best to interact with your loved one, or you know, because there are things that will change when when a loved one has you know a more serious diagnosis and has to you know possibly take some different kind of medications to to um, keep them safe and so I would suggest to like look up what you know how how is how to best interact with with that loved one when they have been diagnosed with this and maybe talk to their their doctors or social workers and figure out like I we used to have family meetings where when a person there was shock to the family too not just to the person having the diagnosis so we would share like okay this was a symptom oh really I thought this was just her being like stubborn and oh no this was a symptom this is not her this was her symptom and you know how best to interact with your loved one because that could make your life a lot easier and theirs but overall yes thank you so much Dee I mean that was very enlightening and um in closing, you know, your vast experience has helped many people listening now and on the podcast um, understand how to reach out and what kind of services they should be looking for. You know, you may, you may have saved someone weeks of frustration attempting to navigate the system blindly, you know, or, you know, not only do our listeners now know how to get help for loved ones or themselves, but how to make sure they are getting quality care and what to do if they are not 
and to know they have rights and to find out what they are. For all, to all of you listening and on behalf of Dr. Marina, Dorothy Marie Shai King, Rich Woman Magazine, and all of you listening today, I would like to say thank you and you all complete me. I would like to take this opportunity to say to Dr. Marina, thank you so much for this space, this platform. And Angela, thank you so much for being such a gracious, gracious hostess. I was absolutely thrilled to be able to present this information. And for those people who are tuned in or in the room who know me, you got a rare treat today because I have never divulged that my name was Dorothy Shy King. Dee Marie is who I am. And that's what everybody knows me as. So thank you so much, Angela. Thank you, Dee. I love your name. Either way, it's beautiful. And so I guess what we'll be doing now is closing down the podcast. And soon we'll be bringing people up for soon within the next seconds uh, for Q&As. Thank you.